6.30 p.m. Thursday, June 13th, 1996, Overland Park, Kansas. A beautician at the Snip and Clip Hair Salon finishes trimming a client's hair. She and her customer walk to the front of the store. They see two young men approach the rear of a convertible parked outside. One of the men gets into the driver's side of the vehicle. The other man points a gun through the open window at the man sitting in the passenger seat. As the passenger exits the car, a shot is fired. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. There will be utter stupidity. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. However, I did work in a prison for a couple of years. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or podcasting or psychology. I do think I'm an expert in lots of things, though. But truly, I'm just a true crime fan who researches and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me about true crime with you. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about how lives can be ruined in just seconds. And, of course, about murder. Kansas City is a large metropolitan area of about 2 million people. It straddles the Missouri River. This means the KC area really refers to parts of two different states, Missouri and Kansas. Starting in the 20th century, the urban area of Kansas City spread south and west into Johnson County, Kansas, gobbling up surrounding little towns in its wake. Much of Johnson County is now a built-up extension of Kansas City. If you are driving along, it's hard to tell where Kansas City stops and Johnson County begins, except that houses and businesses tend to get newer as you get away from the city center. The Johnson County metro area includes several little cities that all run together. If you are familiar with the area, the scene of the murder for this episode is the Shawnee Mission area, which includes little cities like Prairie Village, Mission, Merriam, and Overland Park. Johnson County is a very well-to-do county with a population of about half a million and a median income of over $80,000. Money Magazine has ranked Overland Park as high as sixth on its list of best 100 places to live in the U.S. If you head southwest from Overland Park, down Interstate 35, 
suburbia continues. You pass by Olathe with housing development after development set into cow pastures. There's a joke that the main crops in once rural Olathe are now $300,000 houses and convenience stores. Then after maybe 30, 40 minutes, you'll get to Gardner Edgerton. Gardner has about 20,000 people, and it's a growing little city. Edgerton is right next to Gardner, about 2,000 people, best known for having the main railroad hub between Los Angeles and Chicago. This area isn't yet covered with suburban sprawl, but if I had to predict, I'd say it won't be long. The growth pattern of Johnson County is definitely headed that way. In 1996, the year of our murder, Gardner and Edgerton are more rural Kansas towns with lots of trailer parks and low-income housing and drug problems. Thursday, June 13th, 1996, is a nice summer day in Johnson County, Kansas. In Gardner, Michelle Zanin and three of her friends, Darren Stevens, Michael Yardley, and John Maynard, are hanging out. As we'll see, this is not the most productive or intelligent bunch. Yardley has brought a stolen gun that he is passing around. It is an Essex Arms 45 caliber semi-automatic handgun with the name Gordy etched on the side. They smoke some marijuana and talk about how Maynard and Yardley, who are only 17 and 18 years old, have arrest warrants out for them. They bring up how they should just steal a car and take off for Phoenix. Michelle and Darren later say they did not take the pair seriously. I guess I can see that. Michelle now, she actually has a trailer and a car and a job, although very bad taste in friends, has to go to work. She gives Maynard and Yardley a ride into Overland Park and drops them at the Quick Trip convenience store at 7400 Shawnee Mission Parkway. Quick trips are, I don't know if they're everywhere, it, they're kind of like 7-Elevens um, or Circle Ks, nice convenience stores. They have really good sandwiches. She, Michelle later swears she had no idea what they were going to do in town, although they just spent the afternoon talking about finding a car at a gas station with the keys in it to steal and go to Phoenix, and they were passing a gun around. But I suppose for some people that might be an intellectual leap to figure out what might happen later on. In the meantime, Deborah and Donald England, who live in Mission, decide to run errands in Overland Park that afternoon. They are a middle-aged couple, the parents of two teenage sons. Even though they are divorced, they remain on good terms. Donald is suffering from a brain tumor and has moved back in with Deborah and the boys while undergoing treatment. Deborah is driving Donald's 1990 Chrysler LeBaron convertible. I looked at a picture of a red LeBaron convertible, and it's a pretty neat-looking car. I don't know if Donald's was red or not, but 
It might be a symptom of a middle-aged guy's mild midlife crisis. Donald is 45 and divorced. That can be a tough time in a guy's life. Anyway, a little after 6 p.m., Deborah and Donald stop at the Snip and Clip on Shawnee Mission Parkway, about a quarter mile from the Quick Trip, where Michelle Zanin just dropped off Maynard and Yardley. Snip and Clips are a chain of no-frills hair salons where you just walk in. You don't need an appointment. This little shop is located in a busy strip mall on Shawnee Mission Parkway, which is one of the main thoroughfares in Johnson County. Four lanes or sometimes more divided road with lots of lights and traffic. They are not far in this area from Shawnee Mission North High School, if you know the area. That's actually where Donald graduated high school in 1968. Jessica Rojas, the stylist, can take Deborah right away. The other hairdresser tells Donald she is free also if he wants to get his hair done. But Donald decides to just wait for Deborah outside and listen to the radio in the LeBaron. The top isn't down, but the windows are. I'm sure Donald was just relaxing, listening to some tunes, and enjoying the nice summer evening. It doesn't take long for Jessica to finish up with Deborah, and she walks with her up to the front of the store to ring Deborah up. Deborah glances outside and sees two young white men, one a redhead and one a brunette, approach the rear of the convertible. One of the men gets in the driver's side of the car and the other points a gun in the window on the passenger side. Donald gets out of the car with the gun still pointed toward him. Jessica will later testify that Donald may have tried to kick the gunman, but she's not sure of that. Honestly, I doubt it. I really think Donald would be very careful getting out of the car, trying not to make any sudden moves. Of course, getting out of a car with a gun pointed at you is probably awkward, and it's certainly possible you'd accidentally lurch toward the gun pointed at you. Deborah races outside and hears a shot. She and Jessica see Donald drop to the pavement, blood spreading from a wound in the middle of his chest. Deborah just loses it and grabs the driver's side door, screaming, What are you doing? What are you doing? You just shot someone and you're leaving? The driver was yelling at the shooter to get in the car. As Donald England lay on the pavement, dying from a 45 caliber bullet wound to his chest, the assailants roar off in his car. The car heads west on Shawnee Mission Parkway, but almost immediately hits another car, jumps the median, and gets turned around toward the east. The driver guns LeBaron and races east on the parkway. Not far from the scene of the carjacking, about 7 p.m., a woman is looking out her front window. She sees a convertible with two men in it going by her house, very slowly. This looks odd to her, so a little while later, when she sees the two white males walk by her house, 
she kind of makes a mental note of it. Later, when she sees the same car parked at nearby Tomahawk Elementary School, she calls the police and they locate the stolen vehicle. Listeners, what do you want to bet? She was walking her dog when she saw the car. Imagine where police would be without joggers and dog walkers. While the carjacking is going on, Jeff Birdsong, an acquaintance of Michael Yardley, is outside a house in the area working on his car. A car pulls up and Yardley gets out of the passenger side of the vehicle and asks if he can use the garage of the house. Birdsong, a bright man, says no way. Yardley gets back in the car and leaves. Fifteen minutes later, two men, one Yardley again, and another Birdsong didn't know turn up at the house, this time on foot, and asked to use the phone. Jeff lets them, and they soon leave. Birdsong will later say, quote, You could see a scared look in their eyes, like something happened, unquote. He was right. Senseless murder happened. I was living in this area when this crime took place in Merriam, Kansas. The reaction in the community was a lot of regret that our protected little suburban enclaves were no longer immune to big city crimes like carjacking. Okay, so Maynard and Yardley, I'm sure you've already figured out, they are the carjackers, are on the loose. At the Birdsong house, they call their attorneys and are getting ready to turn themselves in. No, I made that up. That's not what they did. They should have, but no. They call Carrie Roberts, another brainiac friend of theirs, and ask for a ride saying it's a life and death situation. She picks them up just a few blocks from where the convertible was found abandoned. She, genius, asks them if they kill somebody. As she testifies later, they didn't answer. She drops them off at, guess where? A trailer park in Gardner, where 16-year-old friend Pam Wade lives. Pam had received a page from Maynard to be home later that he was in, as she says at the trial, quote, a spot of trouble, unquote. I don't know, listeners. I have trouble putting those words into Maynard's mouth. Sounds way too cultured. When the two walk in to the trailer, Maynard tosses a car's gear shift knob onto a bed. Turns out it's a Chrysler LeBaron gear shift knob. Turns out the convertible police found by Tomahawk Elementary School is missing its gear shift knob. Yardley is wearing a gray t-shirt with the letters TLC on it. He asked Pam to burn the shirt. So, now she slips out with the bloody t-shirt, runs to a neighboring trailer, and calls the cops. No, I made that up too. But she doesn't burn the t-shirt. She washes it a few times and ends up keeping it. Another friend, Shauna Miller, arrives late that night. She asks about the gear shift knob and is told that 
It's a souvenir. She testifies later that Maynard and Yardley really wanted to watch the news. Something I'm guessing they probably don't do very much. And the next day, she walks with Yardley to a convenience store to get a copy of the Kansas City Star. I'm also guessing they're not usually big newspaper readers. After they look at an article on the shooting in Overland Park, Yardley says, well, there wasn't a car chase because we were going way too fast for anyone to catch us. Brilliant. He asked Shauna not to say anything because his, quote, ass was going to the frying chair. When I screwed up, I screwed up good, unquote. He's right. So now Shauna goes home and calls the police. Nope, 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 nope. She doesn't do anything. None of this group of idiots does anything except go about their stupid lives. Finally, almost a week later, a Gardner police officer stops a truck with four people in it. I couldn't find anything specific about why the newspaper reports just say he stopped them for a possible violation of a municipal code. I'm thinking these people, it's Maynard, Yardley, Pam Wade, and another man named John House who owns the truck. I bet they are, as they say, known to law enforcement. So the officer found a reason to stop them. They all give false names, and Maynard brilliantly pipes up that he is often mistaken for his brother, John Maynard. Well, that perks up the officer's ears because he knows all about the carjacking and that the Metro Squad is interested in talking to a John Maynard about it. So maybe someone who's involved with Maynard and Yardley grew a conscience during this week and called the cops with a tip. The officer also realizes he's looking right at a guy who looks like the composite of the carjacker that Deborah and Jessica, gave, Jessica Rojas gave the police. He gets Yardley, Wade, and House under control, but Maynard takes off. And a lengthy standoff in a Gardner apartment complex ensues. Couldn't find any newspaper articles about the standoff, and it apparently went on for a couple of days. But in court documents, it says that an Overland Park police officer named Mark Vargo was sent to Gardner to help in the negotiations which finally lead to Maynard's arrest. In the meantime, Yardley lawyers up. Pam Wade can't stop talking about the gear shift and the t-shirt and everything they were saying and probably about how scared and innocent she is. John House consents to a search of his truck, which yields... Ta-da! A 45 caliber handgun with the name Gordy 
engraved on it. Maynard stews in jail for a couple of days and then asks to talk to his mother and Officer Vargo. He tells him about his involvement in the crime, but says Yardley did the shooting. Maynard also wants a deal. He won't get one. Yardley and Maynard are tried together in 1997. It's as close to an open and shut case as you will find. The 45 found in the truck is identified as the murder weapon. Police have fingerprints from the convertible. They have the gear shift and the t-shirt. They have eyewitnesses to the crime. And a lot of so-called friends who can't wait to spill their guts about Yardley and Maynard. The only real question is whether Maynard or Yardley actually shot the victim. Of course, they both point the finger at each other. From the evidence at trial, I think it's pretty clear that Yardley is the shooter. He's dark-haired, and Yardley is a redhead. Everyone agrees that the redhead was driving the convertible. However, that really doesn't matter in this case. As the district attorney tells the press, to be guilty of felony murder, you only have to be a willing participant in a dangerous felony. In Kansas, felony murder charges carry mandatory life sentences with no possibility of parole for at least 15 years. If you're not familiar with felony murder statutes, they're pretty interesting. Felony murder is defined as a homicide that occurs as the result of the commission of a violent felony. Certainly carjacking at gunpoint qualifies as a violent felony. Here's an example I found from a criminal justice course. I think it was maybe from an online State University of New York class. I put the link in the show notes if you want to look into it more. This is the example. Jane and Joe dream up a plan to rob a local bank. Joe is designated as the primary robber, and he is supposed to enter the bank, hand a note to the teller demanding all the money in her station. Jane's role in the felony is to drive the getaway vehicle to the bank, wait outside the front door with the motor running, and transport Joe and the money back to their apartment. Joe takes a handgun hidden beneath his jacket into the bank. He passes the note to the teller, and she frantically summons a security guard. As the security guard starts to approach, Joe pulls out the gun. An elderly lady standing to the left of Joe suffers a heart attack and dies at the sight of the gun. In this case, Joe and Jane can probably be convicted of felony murder. Note that Jane did nothing to directly cause the victim's death from a heart attack. However, Jane did drive the getaway vehicle with the criminal intent to commit robbery. So Jane is criminally responsible for the consequences in many jurisdictions. We can change this classic case a little bit, and you might be able to argue a different outcome. Jane is a teller at a bank. Joe and Jane 
plan a robbery. Jane will pretend Joe is a customer and hand Joe all the money in her station after he enters the bank unarmed and passes her a phony check made out to cash. Without informing Jane, Joe brings a gun into the bank just in case. The security guard observes Jane handing Joe large amounts of cash. Suspicious, he begins to approach the station. Joe notices and frantically pulls out the gun and points it at the security guard. The elderly woman, standing to the left of Joe, suffers a heart attack and dies at the sight of the gun. In this example, Jane may have a valid defense to co-felony liability for the elderly lady's death in some jurisdictions. Although Jane had the intent to commit theft, a trier of fact could determine that Jane had neither the knowledge nor awareness that a death might occur because she believed she was cooperating in a non-violent offense. That's the key. Thus, it is possible that in certain jurisdictions, only Joe is subject to conviction of felony murder in this case. Maynard's lawyer does try to argue that this case is more like the latter example. He says that Maynard was just a flunky who, quote, signed up for a robbery and never intended for anyone to get hurt. He was just a 17-year-old kid who was simply scared to death, unquote. Gotta call total BS on all that. By his own admission, Maynard says he knew Yardley had the gun in his waistband. Maynard says the plan was for Yardley to just lift his shirt and expose the gun if they ran into any resistance. He whines that Yardley wasn't supposed to shoot anybody. None of this washes with the jury. Both are convicted. At sentencing, Deborah England tells the judge, quote, Your Honor, I hope and pray with your sentence today, my sons Donnie and Chris will not ever have to worry about sharing the same city, sidewalk, or street as Michael Yardley and John Maynard, unquote. When it was his turn to speak, Maynard, who was quiet and calm through the court appearances, turned and apologized to Deborah and her sons. But he's really still whining. Quote, it wasn't supposed to go down that way. It was an accident. Unquote. Yardley also addresses the family. But first, a deputy has to remove the surgical mask covering his mouth and nose. During other court appearances, Yardley had cursed loudly, made obscene gestures, and spit at Maynard. On that day, he does apologize for his previous behavior, saying he was stressed out. No kidding. He turns to the family and says, kind of an apology, 
quote, I'd like to say I'm sorry. I know you all don't think I think about that, but I think about that every day, unquote. Fortunately, the judge has the final word. Quote, the evidence presented at trial shows that this crime was vicious, unprovoked, and totally random. Unquote. He tells Maynard and Yardley, you are sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for at least 15 years. Listeners, it's got to be very satisfying to be able to speak with a big gavel like that. Later, the two defendants do file appeals, but they are futile. Yardley goes to El Dorado Correctional Facility, and Maynard goes to Lansing Correctional Facility, as we know, near Leavenworth. Both are still in prison today. However, that is not the end of one of their stories. In 2004, 46-year-old Toby Young's marriage to firefighter Pat Young is coming to an end. Her two sons are growing up, and she faces an empty nest. Toby, T-O-B-Y, is depressed and lonely. In her own words, to me, depression was like this fog that seeps into every cell, and nothing you do, you're never happy. Toby decides to throw herself into good works. She founds Safe Harbor Prison Dog Program, which takes abandoned dogs and places them with prison inmates for a time for socializing and training. Then Safe Harbor finds homes for the dogs. This was a very successful program at Lansing Correctional Facility, which is a state prison located near Leavenworth and not too far from Young's home in Little Piper, Kansas. After a couple of years, Toby is a fixture at the prison. The Safe Harbor program was praised by state officials, prison officials, and inmates. At the time, listeners, I was working as a teacher at a correctional facility, not far from Lansing Correctional Facility. I was working at Leavenworth Detention Center, which is a private prison operating under a federal marshal's contract. I remember reading about the program and wishing something like that was feasible where I worked. There were pictures in the papers of happy dogs and happy inmates and happy adopting families. It just seemed like a real feel-good story and just a win-win situation for everybody. But not so fast. An inmate participating in the program is one of our carjackers, John Maynard, now 26 a lanky six-foot-two inmate who projects a caring, protective aura 
toward tiny five foot one Toby Young. As Toby states in Maynard, she found someone who saw the world as she did. Sometimes I'd say to somebody, what does red taste like? They'd look at me like, what are you talking about? Yeah, Toby, gotta say, that's exactly what my reaction would be. I'd be looking at you like you were crazy. But Toby gushes, John said, it tastes like cinnamon and it's spicy and it smells and it fills your whole head with the smell. Ew, sorry listeners, but that kind of fatuous gunk just makes me gag. If you are thinking, this sounds like a disaster waiting to happen, you're exactly right. This is precisely the kind of situation everyone who works or volunteers in correctional settings is trained to avoid. Put simply, inmates have nothing to lose by manipulating people who work in prisons to bend the rules. The people they manipulate have everything to lose as we will see. This is a perfect storm made possible by a prison administration that is allowing a volunteer to be alone with inmates. Huge red flag. Later in 2006, when this all blows up in everybody's faces, the warden will admit she'd been there for quite a while and she had a terrific background, great reputation. Her ethics seemed above reproach. She'd been around so long, gee, a whole year and a half. And she'd done so much. We just said, when you get here, you've got your ID, you can go do what you need to do. Well, what she needs to do turns out to be having an affair with an inmate and planning an escape with him. Typically, Toby drives in and out of LCF in the safe harbor van with dog crates in the back. Sometimes she brings dogs in for placement with inmates, and sometimes she brings dogs out for placement with families. The escape plan is simple. Hide Maynard in a dog crate, put the crate in the van, and drive away. And that's exactly how it proceeds on Sunday, February 12th, 2006. Maynard had dieted and trimmed over 20 pounds from his already lanky frame so he could squeeze into a dog crate. Under the not-so-watchful eye of a correctional officer and some inmates, dog crates were loaded into Toby's van. Of course, security protocol is to search the van and the crates upon entrance and exit to the prison. 
But that doesn't happen on this night. And Toby and Maynard are soon off the prison grounds and headed to Bonner Springs, just to the south of Lansing. There, they pull from a rented storage unit a pickup truck that Toby had recently purchased. They stash the safe harbor van in the unit and take off for a remote mountain cabin near tiny Alpine, Tennessee. I'm not sure why that's where they went. If maybe one of them had some connection to the area, none of the news stories ever really say. It could have just been a remote spot Toby picked out. Once they get to the cabin, they spend time, shall we say, together and occasionally venture out. After the pair's capture, law enforcement searches the cabin. They comment that looks like a nice little party was going on in the cabin. They find reading materials, a laptop computer, video games, sex toys, porn tapes, and $25,000 in cash there, as well as guns. On one of their trips out, 12 days after the escape, Maynard and Toby are spotted by federal marshals who follow them onto Interstate 75 in Tennessee. They are captured after a high-speed chase that ends when the F-150 driven by Maynard crashes into a tree. Back in Kansas, Maynard has another 10 years tacked onto his life sentence. Toby paints herself successfully, she still does, as the poor pitiful woman manipulated by Maynard. She receives two years in prison for her role in the escape. Listeners, my reaction to this case may not be what you think it is. When all this happened, I remember feeling sorry for Toby. If you ever find yourself around inmates, you will discover that it's very easy to feel conflicted about them. There are decent people in jail who are there because of circumstances, sometimes not in their control. There are decent people in jail who are truly remorseful about what they've done. As a Christian, I believe that it's God's place to judge people, not mine. Although, I'm sure you've noticed, I judge people all the time. In my defense, I also repent about this a lot. If you work in a prison, the right thing to do is treat inmates with dignity and respect whenever possible. But it is your job to never, ever, ever trust inmates and to never, ever, ever become personally involved with inmates. Toby Young had the same training I had. She knew all of this, but she threw all that training and just plain common sense out the window. For his part, Maynard proved why people who work in prisons need lots of training. In all honesty, 
I think we have a she said, he said situation here. And surprisingly, to me at least, I believe the he side more than the she side. So here's what he, John Maynard, says about what happened. The he side, if you will. I've always been given the role of the master manipulating scumbag criminal with no morals. And Toby, the poor, manipulated, naive, gullible, depressed, desperate, good girl that I took advantage of. Well, he's right there. That's the story in the newspapers and on TV. And there's a lot of truth to that story. But then Maynard poses a very good question. Why did I stay with her once I was out if I was just manipulating? Why indeed, listeners? When I first heard about the escape, I really thought Maynard would kill Toby first chance he got. He didn't. He didn't even try to leave her, and they were on the run for 12 days. Why? Maynard says, I never manipulated her in the least. I loved Toby with all that I was. Do I take this seriously? Not really. I doubt Maynard can conceive of real love, and there's definitely manipulating going on. But let's think about this. John Maynard was only 17 when he was arrested for murder. Toby is 20 years older than he is, and while she's not a Victoria's Secret model. She's kind of cute and appealing. For a guy who's been in prison his whole adult life and has never had a mature relationship with a woman, that could be very attractive. I honestly think Maynard really did enjoy being with Toby. Now let's consider Toby's side, the she side. In her own words, at the time I was so overwhelmed, so full of pressure, that the escape sounded like a great idea, which was indicative of how broken I really was at that moment. I think at that point in my life, I was just desperate to be loved, to feel like somebody loved me, Maybe John was wearing his inmate hat, and he was perceptive enough to notice a need in me and capitalized on it. There's some truth to what she's saying, but I think the real story is that Toby is a self-deluded narcissist who does things for herself. That's why her marriage was in a shambles. Even the dog program was mostly about her, how caring and good it made her look and feel. As a result of this intense self-focus, she got herself involved in a make-believe world of star-crossed love and drama and adventure and Toby was so self-absorbed that she never considered seriously how this might affect other people. Did it never cross her mind the humiliation her husband and sons would suffer? What about the rest of her family? 
There's a heartbreaking picture in the papers of her poor mother and father trying to cope with this. They look absolutely shell-shocked. Did she worry at all that someone might be physically harmed? There are guns and high-speed chases in this story. It's fortunate nobody got killed. Did she consider the prison officials and the guards she hoodwinked? The guard who didn't search the van was immediately fired. The warden wasn't immediately fired, but he sure should have been. And almost worse than anything else, as I think about it, did it even occur to her what would happen to the Safe Harbor Prison Dog Program? It's also worth remembering, listeners, this was not some spur-of-the-moment escape. Look at the planning. Toby withdrew $42,000 from her retirement account well ahead of time. Toby made arrangements for a remote Tennessee hideout. Toby bought a pickup truck to escape in. Now, some of her planning went awry here, listeners. She ended up using the address of the Tennessee cabin when she bought the truck. That's really how they will end up getting caught. Toby rented a storage facility to hide the escape van in. My guess is that Toby told Maynard to lose weight so he would fit into the crate. And Toby came up with and tested the final escape plan. Consider what might have happened. With all that time, with all the planning, with all the actions Toby took to put the plan into place, she's always able to easily back out. She can do that. She's not in prison. She can plead mental issues. She certainly had them. And easily turn the safe harbor program over to one of her other volunteers. Then she never goes back to Lansing Correctional Facility. That's not what she did because that would have meant taking the focus off Toby. Instead, she played out her fantasy and made herself the star of her very own little drama. And the drama continues. Our Toby is all over the media, granting interviews, writing her memoirs, and running her own website where she shares her thoughts. Listeners, a real victim here is Donald G. England Sr. He is buried at Johnson County Memorial Gardens on Metcalf in Overland Park. You can see his marker on Find a Grave and send him a virtual flower if you like. Donald was only 45 years old when he was just randomly murdered. He is survived by his wife, Deborah, and two sons. Michael Yardley, the shooter, is still incarcerated at El Dorado Correctional Facility, as he should be. John Maynard spent a lot of his sentence 
at Lansing, although he has moved around quite a bit in the prison system, which is understandable given his history. Currently, the Kansas Department of Corrections lists Maynard's incarceration status as out-of-state, Kansas inmate released for housing. That word released made me a little nervous, so I called the DOC and confirmed that that just means he is in jail in another state for the time being. Sometimes inmates get moved for security reasons or, or just because of overcrowding. Toby's husband, Pat Young, divorced her. As far as I can tell, neither he nor her grown sons have a relationship with Toby. Unlike Toby, none of them will discuss the case. The Safe Harbor Prison Dogs Program is still in operation and appears to be thriving. I'm happy to report that. The website is www.allOneWordSafeHarborPrisonDogs. Harbor, the American spelling without the U, H-A-R-B-O-R. Toby spent two years in prison down in Texas. She then moved to Boston and has remarried. Her name is now Toby Dorr, D-O-R-R. She has moved back to Kansas City and operates an internet marketing company. In one of the articles where Toby is interviewed, she mentions that she has founded a nonprofit organization called With Conviction, aimed at, I hope you're ready for this, reintegrating inmates into society. Seriously? I'm just astonished at this. I can't imagine why she would want to get anywhere near inmates, but I guess I'll just have to hope that nobody ever lets this dingbat near a prison again. Toby also runs her own website where she posts all kinds of psychobabble. The website is tobydoor.com, T-O-B-Y-D-O-R-R.com. Here's a quote. I offer you redemption, healing, love, and acceptance. Dorothy. Of course, she's talking about Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, a work of fiction, by the way. Dorothy always had the power to go home. She just didn't believe it. Find the strength of character to explore who you really are. Have the courage to cast off your cloak and fulfill your potential. I am a storyteller. But more importantly... I am a survivor, an explorer, a risk taker, and a butterfly. Your time as a caterpillar has expired. Your wings are ready. Discover your story. Listeners, just sigh. Toby recently shared with a reporter that Maynard has never apologized to her. Well, boo-hoo. Maynard responded, We made well-thought-out, mulled-over, 
analyzed from every angle, stupid decisions. I owe her no apologies for any choices. Right on. In my opinion, the he in our she said, he said story may have learned something over the years. Are she, are Toby, not so much. I posted the links to the sources used for this episode in the show notes. Reporter Tony Rizzo covered the carjacking story and the trial for the Kansas City Star. The Star also did excellent coverage on the escape. There is information online about the interviews with Toby. Just Google Escape, Lansing, Toby, Dog, and you'll find them. A very good interview was conducted by Lauren Fox at www.kansascity.com. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. Recently, I set up an email for the podcast, Prison City Murders, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can comment on the cases on the podcast website, Prison City Murders, all one word, dot blueberry, B L U B R R Y dot net. If you think I was too hard on Toby, let me know because I would still like to sentence her to be in a room with the formidable Nancy Grace for a while. For now, let's hope she's getting some real therapy. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars. <laughs>